which is a huge tragedy with people are coming there very much traumatized already. They are probably here to stay for a long time. So this is a huge change for Armenia as well, not just for Nagorno-Karabakh. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. On September 19th, Azerbaijan launched a swift military offensive against ethnic Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh, a long-disputed region. Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a bloody war over this territory following the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That resulted in de facto Armenian control over what is internationally recognized to be Azerbaijani territory. That status quo existed for nearly 30 years, until September 2020, when Azerbaijan launched a surprise military offensive routing ethnic Armenian forces. Russia brokered a ceasefire and installed Russian peacekeepers to enforce a truce. But Azerbaijan had the clear military advantage. Meanwhile, Russia's invasion of Ukraine undermined its role in the region. So Azerbaijan took the initiative, and a now de facto ethnic cleansing is underway as tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians flee their homes and their homeland since the Middle Ages. Joining me from Yerevan, Armenia, is Alessa Vartinyan, senior analyst for the South Caucasus region at the International Crisis Group. When we last spoke in February, Azerbaijan had effected a blockade of parts of Nagorno-Karabakh, causing food and fuel shortages and sparking a humanitarian crisis. At the time, Alessa Vartinyan predicted Azerbaijan would soon press its military advantage and take all of Nagorno-Karabakh, that proved prescient. This conversation contains some really truly expert analysis about an evolving situation in the South Caucasus. It will give you the context you need to understand events as they unfold over the coming weeks and months. A couple of quick notes before we start. First, we are in the midst of a really impressive period of growth for the podcast. Thank you to all you new subscribers to the show. Welcome. I've been doing this for 10 years now, two episodes a week, every week without fail. Thanks for joining us. And for those of you listening on Spotify, remember to 
tap the little bell icon to get notified of when new episodes release. And for those of you using Apple Podcasts, you can do the same in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Finally, there are links in the show notes to ways you can support the show financially. We require a degree of listener support to keep on keeping on. Thank you for becoming a premium subscriber and supporting the show. Now here is my conversation with Alyssa Vartignan of the International Crisis Group. I'd like to just kick off by asking you, what's the the mood in Yerevan right now? Well, uh, you know, it was a expected and not really expected development that took place a week ago. There was some military buildup. There were people speculating about possible escalation. But I think the scale of what happened, it was not something that many really expected to see. And right now, I would say that with huge lines of cars and trucks that are uh, still coming from Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia is what captures much of the attention of the people because all understand, all here, they understand that this is a huge tragedy with people that are coming there very much traumatized already. They are probably here to stay for a long time. So this is a huge change for Armenia as well, not just for Nagorno-Karabakh. Does Armenia just have the capacity to absorb so many refugees at this point? You know, Armenia is not a big country and has a small population. Uh, It's uh, not really very rich either. I should say that also people who are coming from Karabakh, they are different. We call them ethnic Armenians, but in fact, they speak a distinct language. This language is different from the one that they spoken in Armenia. They have their own traditions. Many of them are coming from mountainous villages. It will be very difficult for them to start a new life. So, you know, it's really very difficult to find a way to address the immediate needs. People are coming, it's winter, you know, that is soon to start. Uh, Many of them are coming with just one bag. They didn't really bring their belongings. And uh, the government apparently has been already having some problems with registering such a huge number of people. At this very moment, the moment that we speak, the government confirms over 50,000 people that came from Nagorno-Karabakh. It is almost half of those who were there before the military operation started. But I mean, many more are still to come. Every single person I spoke to, those who came already and who are in Armenia, I mean, I know many of them from my work in recent years, and then not a single person registered because apparently they see huge lines at this registration center some of them are so much traumatized by with recent military operation. They lost their relatives, many of them, and then they had to spend like hours in this huge traffic jam between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia. So they kind of skip it and not necessarily everyone understand why they should be doing that altogether. So this is like one thing that I am sure will 
turn into a huge problem because then there will be people who will need an assistance, who will require some support both from the Armenian government, but possibly even from NGOs or international organizations. And just because they are not registered, they might not necessarily get that. Since Armenia is a poor country, it should not be a surprise that uh, it will face enormous problems with uh, settling with people coming from Nagorno-Karabakh in all different parts of Armenia. Even before the inflow, I mean, with Exodus started from Nagorno-Karabakh, the prime minister of Armenia, he said that we're prepared to accommodate around 40,000 people. I spoke to some international organizations that are dealing with humanitarian topics, and they were very surprised <laughs> to hear that there were some planning, and then many of them didn't know about this thing happening altogether. But I mean, he said 40,000, we already have 50,000. And with many, many more coming. Absolutely. And then again, winter is coming, with people are very traumatized. There will be a huge issue with them integrating. These are the problems that will stay with Armenia for years to come. Is there concern within those in your kind of circle, the policy experts that you speak with, that Azerbaijan, clearly the dominant military power now, will continue and press on with their offensive and try to capture territory within Armenia proper itself. Look, with this like a standing concern since the 2020 war that Azerbaijan won, and then this is when Azerbaijan captured much of the conflict zone in Nagorno-Karabakh. Since then, Azerbaijan has been building military positions along the Armenian-Azerbaijani borders. And in fact, some of the sections of this border, they were much deadlier and with many more clashes and incidents than Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone itself. So the fact that there are concerns there are people who are speaking about this. It should be of no surprise to anyone because, again, with areas along the border, they have been producing many more incidents, many more clashes than Nagorno-Karabakh itself during the last three years. In some areas where I have traveled for my field work, I saw Armenian and Azerbaijani position separated from each other by just 10 or 20 meters like a start of an incident that can escalate and turn into a, another clash. I mean, it's very easy. And then we saw, unfortunately, we saw what's happening during the last three years. But on top of it, you know, Azerbaijan, with its very well-equipped and organized army, it has a dominance along the Armenian-Azerbaijan border. Its troops are stationed in many areas on the mountains, right next to the strategic roads. And you know, it will take Azerbaijani troops very little. I mean, it will be a matter of hours, probably similar to the military operation that we saw last week in Nagorno-Karabakh, for them to take over the main roads and also more territories inside Armenia. And in one of the areas, the Azerbaijani troops are stationed in such a place that it will take them just uh, several hours to take more, one gorge, and then they will cut Armenia in two, you know, with enormous humanitarian consequences. So it's not a matter of capacity, it's a matter of will. If Azerbaijan wants to press forward, it could, and it could sort of decimate Armenia. It's only a matter of whether or not Aliyev and the political leadership in Baku decides to take that fateful step. 
with is a very valid concern, the security of the border, and then which has provoked many, many problems with three years. I promise that it will be a headache for everyone for months to come. And then this is one of the main topics also for the negotiations between these two countries. So, I mean, it's really very important to continue addressing it. Otherwise, believe me, even without kind of, you know, like a major issues or something, it can turn into another escalation. So when we spoke last in February, you predicted this moment would come. At the time, Azerbaijan had the clear military advantage in Nagorno-Karabakh, and you said it was only a matter of time before they pressed that advantage and took over the entire disputed territory. So my question to you is, why now? Why in September, during the United Nations General Assembly of all times, did Azerbaijan opt to mount this swift military offensive? Look, it's a great question, and I don't have an answer to it. In general, I can tell you that in this part of the world, with mountains and kind of the local weather conditions, usually September and end of March, beginning of April, these are the best seasons for any kind of military activities. And that's why we constantly see that People get kind of worried if and there are any kind of problems in the negotiations, tensions, and so on, just because they know that this is the best time to start something bad. Why Azerbaijan started it right now? When I started seeing with military buildup, there were so many signs in the beginning of September. Armenia produced regular reports, Nagorno-Karabakh, de facto officials, they released the video footage. It was clear that something was going on. You know, we were constantly receiving with reports from the news leaks. Some people from Azerbaijan, I know they were telling that something is going on. Then the EU mission that is present in Armenia spoke about the tensions. But I mean, when people like me look at this, we are also kind of looking, also trying to understand the rationale. And then if you ask me, there was absolutely no need for this military operation because Azerbaijan was about to receive what it got through the military activities, except for the fact then that probably Armenian population would have stayed in place. And I will explain you why. Yeah, yeah, explain that. So you're basically saying that Azerbaijan would have just regained full control over Nagorno-Karabakh without the apparent ethnic cleansing that just happened. Yes. So yeah, explain that. How do you figure? So look, Armenia, Azerbaijan, they have been engaging in negotiation on the peace deal, yeah? And then Armenia has already committed and said that it was ready to sign and ready to go for everything that Azerbaijan was asking. Just the only thing that they were concerned about is the lack of clarity on the future of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenians that live there. So what happened is that Americans and Europeans, they have spent like weeks and months since spring making attempts to organize the negotiations between the facto authorities and Azerbaijani officials. And they have progressed so well. There were two meetings scheduled with clarity on the agenda on who was coming. The first meeting failed because Russians started pressurizing the facto authorities, producing threats that were leaked even to the Russian official media. Russia didn't want the United States and Europe to like meddle in what they thought was their backyard. And they, Russia had historically been the guarantors of 
peace in the region and indeed in 2020 installed peacekeepers and helped to broker a ceasefire. But with Ukraine, presumably, Russia's focus is elsewhere. Thus, the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis can't really look to Russia to broker this dispute. They needed to look elsewhere. And then the U.S. and Europe kind of stepped in to help fill that diplomatic void. But you still have Russia that has an interest and then believes that with the sphere of its interest and probably the Russian officials could not really understand and then were terrified just to see that uh, some negotiations were progressing. And then what they did in the beginning of August is that they started proposing the things to Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan understood that they were to get the things without with negotiations that were suggested, you know, that were offered by the US and EU. We're having a very clear prospect of having with two tracks between the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijani officials, and then it could give also a possibility, a prospect for Armenia and Azerbaijan to sign the peace deal probably even by the end of this year. And then with military operation, if you ask me, it was absolutely not necessary. Everyone was going after the Azerbaijani president. U.S. Secretary Blinken called him several times, president of Council of the European Union, several European leaders called him. With uh, the U.S. side, there was even a discussion of sanctions. And he told everyone, every single leader, he said that, don't worry, I'm not going to go for the military operation. And then it happened. So you can imagine the level of this frustration that these officials now have. And then I still don't understand. Maybe time will show, you know, what he got by doing that. From the conflict resolution perspective, the fact that Azerbaijan is now formally in charge of Nagorno-Karabakh, and it managed to achieve with the fact that they dismantled the local authorities, they are dismantling their military troops. I'm not sure that in a longer perspective, this is the way to find a settlement to this conflict that is over 30 years old. Because with people who are coming to Armenia, yes, they are traumatized, they are lost, they are grieving right now, but they are also the ones who strongly believe that this is their homeland. And they will probably not forget, you know, the fact how they had to flee the region, how many of them had to die, their family members. I'm not sure Azerbaijan did a good thing in a longer perspective by this military operation. Well, I, I mean, maybe if you use a medium or short-term time horizon, then the Azerbaijani position is a little more understandable, at least to me. I mean, on one hand, they could have gotten like 90% of what they wanted through negotiations, but if their goal was indeed to rid Nagorno-Karabakh of its ethnic Armenian population that could only have been achieved through military force, they did just that. There seems to be this ethnic cleansing underway right now. And again, from the Azerbaijani perspective, it's hard to imagine any serious repercussions. I mean, we haven't gotten into this yet, but Azerbaijan, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just kind of turned on the natural gas and oil spigots and pointed it towards Europe. And Europe has been soaking in Azerbaijani energy, among other things. And of course, Azerbaijan has that alliance with Turkey. So, I mean, from their perspective, it's hard to imagine that they may face any serious repercussions from what happened. 
Mark, I understand uh, with kind of immediate interest that can be in place. But on the other hand, this is not how it should be done. Oh, I agree. It's not me saying that. I mean, there are so many examples all around the world when people use the force and they never found the solution. With very conflict in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, I think one of the main reasons why we continue having this endless cycle, you know, with vicious cycle of uh, violence all the time is exactly because we see one side winning and then it's just kind of winner takes it all. Or we just don't really see any kind of attempt to negotiate, to compromise, and then constantly someone is winning and the other is losing. I mean, it's not the way how you resolve the problems with your neighbors. Of course, you can continue pretending that you are strong and uh, you are rich and this is not a problem to you, but maybe this is something that will continue creating headaches in years to come. I think it will. So as we're speaking, Samantha Power is in Baku, uh, Azerbaijan. She had just uh, visited Yerevan and then the border region on Nagorno-Karabakh. What message should she be sending to Aliyev right now, the, the longtime president of Azerbaijan? I'm in a way sorry for her, to be honest, because she's sent here to the region by the White House, and she has to respond to all these questions that are coming from angry Armenians who are saying that, look, this is what happened, and you promised uh, that if Azerbaijan starts any kind of military activities, that would be your red line. So we don't really see you acting. And she she came here with a clear mission. She wanted to tell to Armenians, first of all, that, look, we do take care and then we sympathize with what you have to go through. And then she announced this financial package, which is, in my view, is very modest, but hopefully there will be more funds to come. So now when she travels, when she's meeting Azerbaijani officials, I would imagine her just raising and telling them what she saw in Armenia during the last couple of days, I mean, before she went to Azerbaijan. And then she probably will be speaking about the need for first to see what happened, you know, with this military operation, if there were any kind of war crimes or any kind of tensions, violence used against the civilians. Because I, I saw her asking a lot of questions about this when she was in Armenia, when she spoke to all these displaced from Nagorno-Karabakh. But also, on the other hand, I think she will be raising with questions and concerns about the need for more international presence in the conflict zone itself. I'm a bit skeptical of this demand coming from the U.S. side, and I can see that there are many more Western officials who are now pushing, and then they kind of consolidated all their efforts to get a mission to Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, I think this mission is a brilliant idea, but it's late. It's already late to have some permanent presence, either in addition or in replacement of the Russian peacekeepers that are present on the ground. And the reason for that is because the majority of the local population, of the local Armenians, they are now gone. Yeah, it's too late. I mean, the time to have had a monitoring mission, which you have advocated for for a long time, was before last week. Yes. And then that could reassure the locals. None of them wanted to leave within their home, you know. But uh, unfortunately, with military operation, on the one hand, it created very 
clear, straightforward threats to the locals who a week ago, they learned that they don't have any kind of their own protection. On the other hand, they saw that Russian peacekeepers, they are doing nothing. They're just standing and they're watching. Many of them just decided to flee their military compounds, their compounds all around the region. So if only any kind of mission could have been announced a week ago, that could definitely prevent so many people fleeing at this very moment. Now it will be so much more difficult, on the one hand, to show, to demonstrate to these people that it's safe. Let's imagine that Baku agreed to the mission, which I'm skeptical about, yeah? And then Russia as well, because, I mean, Russia seems to have its own interest there. I mean, it will be so difficult to tell and then to demonstrate to the people that they can go back and live there, and then there will be no threat to their security, especially after what happened last week. But on the other hand, it will be also a very different process of finding a way to make Azerbaijan accept these people back. On the one hand, I see, I sympathize, and I I mean, I understand this whole push for having the mission. But on the other, I'm skeptical on the one hand, because I understand that Azerbaijan and Russia, they don't want it. But on the other, I also don't understand monitoring mission for what, for who. You know, earlier you sort of articulated that Russia's position following their invasion of Ukraine was, you know, to try to prevent the West, Europe, and the United States from becoming the key diplomatic player, kind of filling the vacuum that Russia left because of the Ukraine war. Now that Azerbaijan has regained control over all of Nagorno-Karabakh, like what's Russia's and Putin's driving interest in the region now? What we definitely see is that Russia, first of all, its primary interest was to prevent any kind of involvement and increased uh, role of the Western states. Russian officials spoke about this many times in recent weeks and months. We probably should have paid more attention to that. They have been constantly saying that we don't like the fact that the U.S. and the European Union, they are mediating with talks. Russia did not really buy into their arguments that stability was necessary, that stability was in the interest of Russians as well. So what happened is that Russians thought that, first of all, we need to find a way to prevent them from establishing their more regular presence or role between these two countries. But the second, I think, for Russians, they believe that they are so strong and so influential between these two countries that they will still keep and have some sudden role. And this is where I would be skeptical if I were them. Because we clearly see that Azerbaijan has uh, no interest in keeping the Russian peacekeepers. In two years, their mandate is lapsing. If there are no people on the ground, what Russian peacekeepers are needed for? And the second, I mean, in Armenia, I can tell you that during this uh, last three years, uh, since the 2020 war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I mean, we're very clear anti-Russian sentiments boosting in the local society. And you can imagine what people are saying after what happened last week when the Russian peacekeepers were just standing and they were not doing anything. Even more, Moscow started blaming Armenia, trying to find all possible excuses to explain its impotence and, and its inactivity, its lack of desire or its inability to prevent 
escalations like this. So it doesn't look good at all. And I don't know where it's heading. I'm not sure they in Moscow fully understand what they got themselves into. Because it's maybe worth just emphasizing to, for those who are not aware that, you know, Armenia and Russia have historical, you know, security ties. But they're both part of the, you know, Moscow dominated what's called the Collective Security Treaty Organization. But Armenia is also a maturing democracy. Whereas Azerbaijan, you know, it seems that there's like a lot of similarities between Putin and Aliyev. Both are kind of kleptocratic, oil and energy rich leaders who've been, you know, kind of presidents for life for the last 20 years. So there does seem to be that kind of personal connection on the Azerbaijan side, even though there's this historical connection between Armenia and Russia, despite the fact that Armenia is now drifting ever closer towards like a more mature democracy, whereas Azerbaijan is a dictatorship. Aliyev's dad was the previous president of Azerbaijan. Indeed, but you know, at the same time, what we have been witnessing, especially in recent weeks, is uh, Armenia and Russia uh, exchanging very harsh statements uh, to the point that uh, there were even some Russian officials, like real formal officials, who work at the Russian ministries, who made calls for people to take to the streets in Yerevan to change the leadership here. After this last week's operation, I was here, you know, when it was happening. I saw some people going to the streets. Some of them had very valid concerns. They were frustrated with what happened in the Gorny Karabakh. Others, they were there just because they don't like the current leadership altogether. But none of that looked critical. And I, at some point, I had a feeling that they in Moscow might want it even more, the change of leadership in Armenia than those who are here, you know. So I don't know where it's heading. I'm afraid that, in fact, if it continues this way, if like uh, some certain elements will be in place, we might see Armenia drifting away from Moscow in the coming months. So looking ahead, what do you think is the most urgent priority for the international community right now? Is it presumably, I'm guessing beyond just like the humanitarian support, just getting guarantees from Azerbaijan that those who have remained in Nagorno-Karabakh won't have to fear for their life? Like what are the key asks right now, you'd say? Yeah, these are three things. So one of them is a response to this humanitarian crisis and then finding a way to help Armenia, help these people who are coming and then to settle in Armenia, to integrate, because it doesn't seem possible for them to go back anytime soon. The second, it's really very important to find a way to sustain with peace talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Yes, the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh, it was resolved not the way people wanted, and there are many grievances around that. But Armenia and Azerbaijan, they have real problems that are connected to security, to the border, their negotiations on the transportation roads. There was a lot of work done by the European Union and the United States to facilitate these peace talks. It's really important for this process to continue. Here, it's uh, Azerbaijan in that will probably have to decide whether it would want to stay with the Western mediation or it would want 
again kind of to try best luck with Russia. If uh, this is the second that we are to see, then I'm afraid Armenia will be in a very bad position because it will have no choice but to join the talks where Russia is not really keeping its back and has its own interest that in many cases coincides with Azerbaijan, for example, on the issue of so-called corridor or some of the conversation that we're going about the border and so on. But the third, it's really very important to start thinking about how to address with longer-term issues related to Nagorno-Karabakh. Yes, we now see Azerbaijan that is speaking about reintegration. There were a couple of meetings already taking place between Azerbaijani representatives and representatives of the local Armenian community. They are good to kind of resolve some immediate issues, maybe also implementation of the ceasefire agreement. But, you know, there will be still the issues about those even few who will stay, those who will settle Azerbaijanis, you know, in these areas, because there are ethnic Armenians, they believe that this is their homeland. Maybe not now, but in a couple of years, they will start saying that we have the right to visit our graveyards. We have cultural heritage there. We have our property there. These are all the topics that in the long term have to be addressed. And it's better to start thinking about this at this very moment so that we actually prevent growing grievances. And also, maybe not right now, it's really very naive from my side to say that a person who is now coming from Nagorno-Karabakh after this terrible military operation and also with problems that they have with evacuation, that this person will be thinking about how potentially to go back. But this issue will be around. You know, There will be people that at some point will say that we have the right to go back there will be a need to establish some formats and mechanisms to start addressing these issues even before they become a problem. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time. I know it's been obviously a very dramatic week in Armenia and Yerevan where I'm catching you. So, so thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.